I have a preemptive question, which I will start with from Renee Simmerman. She wanted me to unpack a little more fully Daniel's weeks. So if you'll turn to Daniel chapter 9, I'll try to give some clarity to this. And by me, I mean the MacArthur Study Bible Notes on my iPad here. Um, well, he's just got it written out so well. I was just going to photocopy and cut and paste it. So, um, so what you've got is 77s. And so it turns out to be weeks of years. And so here we go. These are weeks of years. It's Daniel 9.24 is where the passage starts through 26. These are weeks of years, whereas weeks of days are described in a different way. The time spans from the Persian Artaxerxes decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which is listed in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. These are some of the details scripture gives. We get a very precise dating of Nehemiah of uh, Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 2 to the Messiah's kingdom. That's what it covers. That's what it spans. Um, so it spans all of that time. It gives that great list of things that will happen and where some of those things will happen. This panorama includes, one, seven weeks or 49 years, possibly closing Nehemiah's career and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, as well as the end of the ministry of Malachi and the close of the Old Testament. Weeks, 62 weeks or 434 more years for the total of 483 years to the first advent of the Messiah. So if you take the first six um, uh, no, the first seven weeks, sorry, 49 years, and you add that to the uh, 434 years, you get 483 years, which is the time till Christ arrives. So there's two people spoken of as, as anointed ones in the passage, and all sorts of people in the Old Testament are called the Lord's anointed. Saul, if you remember, David won't strike him down, I dare not reach out my hand against the Lord's anointed, which means anointed for service or ministry, usually accompanied by the Holy Spirit um, equipping for ministry. And then we learn, as we keep reading the Bible, there's a very special, unique, anointed Messiah coming. But in Daniel 9, we get two different people spoken of as the anointed. And I think that might be where confusion came from. So let's, let me get my actual paper Bible open um, here. So we get the first group, which probably um, MacArthur suggests covers the close of the Old Testament, the close of the ministry of Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and those guys. 40, um, hold on, 49 years. So, um, know therefore and understand, verse 25, that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, um, that may even be Zerubbabel. He's a messianic, Davidic figure. And that's just, and the Lord's anointed in the small M sense, Messiah sense. Um, there will be, um, anointed. There shall be seven weeks. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again, or there shall be. Um, it shall be built again, and this is just the time period where the intertestamental period, the four hundred and thirty something years of silence from from Malachi, the last Italian prophet. Okay, you guys, my my jokes are going. My jokes are going over like Led Zeppelin's this morning. Um, okay. Um, and after and after sixty-two weeks, an anointed one. This is a different anointed one because this is four hundred years later, and this is the one who is Jesus, I believe, shall be cut off and have nothing. And that's 
Precisely when Jesus enters and is crucified and killed. He's cut off. He has nothing. And then we jump. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with blood, with a flood. And to the end there shall be war, desolations, and decrees. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week or seven years. There's your seven years of the tribulation. And put an end to sacrifice and offering. So as, as we read Daniel's timetable, there's 70 weeks. Um, and after the, sorry, after 69 weeks, the Messiah comes and is cut off. Now that, as best as we can tell, because we can date our Xerxes, take the Bible state, external, Jesus shows up spot on the money there. Now clearly there's been more than seven years since he was cut off. So what do you do with that? And without going to a huge aside, the, the, um, the answer I think I'd give is that this timetable and this program got hit on pause. And what Paul speaks of as a mystery, the church and um, Christ's work there is now taking place and unfolding. And in Luke 20, go to Luke 21. Jesus refers to the time period we live in now as the times of the Gentiles. And when the times of the Gentiles are done, and Revelation picks up on this, then I believe the sort of unpause will happen, because, because Daniel's asking about Israel. And from 70 AD, with the destruction of the temple, there is no Israel. Israel disappears until the 1940s and post-World War II, which is in itself a rather significant event. you got the same people, the same language, with the same religion, on the same land, after being dispersed for 2,000 years. That's remarkable. But in, um, in wait a sec, Luke 21, we read this, and it's verse, there it is, 21.6, okay. So verse 5. Well, some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it, you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. Jump ahead a little further to verse um, 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that's what we spoke of this morning, um, know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are in the country enter into it. I'm sorry, that's not what he's speaking of. This is another surrounding of Jerusalem yet to come. This is, I think, what's spoken of in uh, Zechariah 12. Um, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among the nations. And all Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So um, as best as we can piece it together, Israel's clock, the 70 weeks, got paused at the completion of week 69. What's remaining is a prince to come who will make a peace treaty for one week and then halfway through break the treaty, cut off worship in the temple. And that sure seems to be what's described in the book of Revelation as the person we know of as the Antichrist and all of that. 
then the time of the Gentiles would seem to be an indefinite period of time that takes place while the Lord works through the church and bringing all nations and all peoples to himself. And that at some time in the future, um, and as we understand it, it's after the church is raptured, the clock unticks, and then the, the tribulation kicks off and the final seven years take place, the time of Jacob's distress where the abomination that makes desolate takes place. So does that help make it clear? So we really are only looking in Palm Sunday at week 69. Anointed one comes and is cut off um, in, in Daniel. So if you look back to Daniel, and we'll close here on this, um, Daniel 9. Look at all the things that are said to take place. To finish the transgression. So part of that is, this is an expression that goes all the way back to... Um, Genesis 12, for God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but first you're going to go to Egypt because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet fulfilled. There's almost like more wickedness. They're going to fill up their cup. So 480, 80, I should have remembered that, but I didn't. 400 and, why am I not seeing this? 83 years um, is going to take place for Israel to, to finish iniquity. To put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. So that, of course, takes place in Jesus' coming. So this is what all the things that will take place in these 70 weeks. To bring in an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Now those things remain for the final week when the Lord returns and he brings in a kingdom and brings an everlasting righteousness. So the, at the head of the prophecy, these are all the things that will take place in these 60, 70 weeks. And then... The anointed one coming and getting cut off is exactly on the money when, when Jesus shows up. So that's my best short treatment on Daniel's 70 weeks. Yeah. Sure. So Jesus, okay, so if you remember in Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord exits the east gate. Well, that was, those weren't words. East gate. East gate goes down the valley, which isn't named in Ezekiel as the Kidron Valley, and then stops on the mount opposite. We know which side of Jerusalem the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives is located, and you guessed it, it's the east side. So Jesus begins his approach at the top of the mount. Okay, just go to Ezekiel and work backwards. We'll work backwards. Go to Ezekiel, I think, 11. Yeah, 11. So in Ezekiel eleven twenty two, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from their midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So it ends, the last time we see the departing glory of the Lord in this progression, its exit is on the mount opposite the valley on the east side of Jerusalem. That's the last point we see. After that, presumably, the glory of the Lord goes wherever the glory of the Lord goes. So it stops there. So this Jesus' starting point, Mount of Olives. He's approaching Mount of Olives. Then, 1018, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. This would be the door of the temple. And stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes and went out with the wheels beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate. So now the movement's from the temple to the entrance of the east gate. 
two down the valley up the other side on top of the mountain. Um, and the glory of the house of... Okay. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. So they've, they've gotten to the exit of the, of the temple, and now they're facing the east gate. Ten, four, the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So now we're seeing the movement from the holy place into the general court of the temple, and it begins... In 9.3, now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it had rested to the threshold of the house. So it starts, the glory of the Lord starts sitting where it is normally, in between the cherubim's wings on the mercy seat of the ark in the Holy of Holies. And it moves to the general court of the temple, then it moves out the east gate of the temple, then it goes out the east gate of Jerusalem, down the valley and up the hill. Jesus starts on the Mount of Olives, goes down the valley, in through the east gate, straight to the temple, and cleanses it. That's the reverse movement. Which Luke doesn't connect. Luke doesn't make that. In fact, I'm not aware of any of the gospel writers making that connection. I just think it's really cool. You read through Ezekiel, and all of a sudden, you're like, well, wait a second. That path looks familiar. <laughs> you know. So I just think it's really cool. But, but admittedly, Luke doesn't make a big deal of it. So other than, hey, isn't this neat? It. It, I think it would be a legitimate thing, too big of a point from Luke. I just, think, I just think the Lord's wisdom and his control over all these things and Old Testament scripture's ability to predict and foresee things is just remarkable. But any, anything further in it? Okay. Other questions? In Ezekiel 43 um, talks about the glory of the Lord uh, returning to a temple that Ezekiel's seeing in a vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that glory goes in through the east gate as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, excellent. That, I believe, is a time yet to come. But no, absolutely. And, of course, according to Zechariah 14.4, the only reference to the old, Mount of Olives in the Old Testament, where does the glorified Lord return to planet Earth? His foot shall set down on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is a pretty key location. It's where Jesus prays. It's where he ascends to heaven from after 40 days. It's where he returns to earth, which is exactly what the angel said. Just as you saw him depart, he will return. And it's the last point of the exit path of the Shekinah glory of God leaving the temple. So, but yeah, the only overt reference to the Mount of Olives by name is Zechariah 14.4. But that, I believe, refers to when the Lord returns, and that's where he sets down his foot. The Lord will go out like a man of war, and his foot shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Thank you, Alex. Excellent. Other questions or thoughts? Deb Gustafson. Oh, no, no, microphone. Well, I was just wondering, because I'm not familiar with the geography, where is the Golgotha and the cross and all that in relation to all this stuff? We're not entirely certain. I don't believe the New Testament text gives geographic locations for Golgotha. So there have been, in archaeology, different claims. I think there are two main sites that are claimed as Golgotha, and there's not any absolute certainty because it's not, any, it's not a place with antecedent Old Testament reference. So, it, it, you know. so I believe right now there are two sites. There's the traditional site, and they've got a new site that they think is Golgotha, but we don't. We don't have, all we have to go on there is archaeology. We don't have much text to go on. It's outside the city. That, that's what we know. It's not within the, the walls of Jerusalem. Beyond that, I, I don't have much of an idea. 
So it wasn't part of prophecy uh, in the Old Testament? Not that I'm aware of. What is part of prophecy, he'll be buried with a rich man in his death. You're going to hear about that on, on Good Friday, this Friday. We're going to read through Isaiah 53. Um, the fact that he was taken outside of the city is made a big deal up by the author of Hebrews. Let us join with him outside the camp. He's taken outside of the camp. That's, that, there's some antecedental text to that, that, that his death does not take place within the community but outside. But beyond that, and, and that it would be a death that involved him being pierced to or by a tree, that's all predicted. Um, but, but the location of where specifically that is, other than outside of the camp, I don't think this Old Testament specifies to. So it's a good question. Oh, Lee Carpenter wants the microphone. I've got a question about anti-Semitism in the world, and that one of the favorite things that people uh, would yell at Jews was Christ killers. Yeah. And how does that tie in? Does that tie into all this punishment that these people rejected him? And I mean, not that I'm. I don't. I'm, I mean, I think anti-Semitism is probably a stupid idea since Christ was Jewish, but, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. you know, where, where that all ties into the yeah. judgment of them for rejecting it and that the world is kind of carrying out God's punishment on them a little bit? Yes and, yes and no. The fact that God can deem someone for punishment doesn't make the one doing the punishment righteous. I mean, Babylon's the perfect example of that. So God, God has... Um, Jerusalem be trodden underfoot to the times of the Gentiles are complete. The Israel is under the covenant curses right now. People, I mean, I, I believe there will be a future restoration of Israel, but that doesn't make me a blind Zionist um, because according to Deuteronomy, Israel is now under the curses of the covenant, not the blessings. So they, they have no divine claim to the land right now. God promised them, if you're not faithful, I'll strip you from it. I, I think they may have a just claim to the land. Like I, from an, I'm, not a, I'm not super studied on the Palestinian stuff, but from the headlines I read and a little bit I know, I frequently sympathize with them. But it's not, this is the land God gave us. Well, God said you wouldn't get to keep it if you weren't faithful, and Israel as a nation is not faithful. So I would warn against a blind Zionism that just always everywhere and everything supports Israel because Israel can be unjust, they can do things that are wrong, and they can, and I think it can be appropriate to in, in, in individual circumstances to potentially side against them. That said, the Apostle Paul's warning is well taken. Go to, go to Romans 9. Um, Paul warns against anti-Semitism. Now, there's a very real sense, and the Bible recognizes a concept that, that we as individual Westerners don't really jive with that much, and that is what's called corporate solidarity. As goes the individual, as goes the people, especially the leader of a people. So um, the simplest example of corporate solidarity would be Adam. Adam represents you. And that's part of the reason why, like, hey, that's not fair. You know? um, and so you've got this corporate solidarity where the, the leaders of the Amalekites are wicked. Their soldiers do wicked things. And so the people are dealt with as a unit, and the people are wiped to be wiped out. We don't distinguish. There's, there's a corporate group identity here. Um, now, certainly salvation is individual. It's not national. But God's justice against nations and the Chaldeans, this notion of corporate solidarity. So Israel's leaders, their religious leaders, who they've approved of, they reject Jesus. Ipso facto, Israel rejects Jesus. And we know there are exceptions. 
We know there are exceptions. Israel, so in that corporate solidarity sense, the Jews killed Jesus. Paul puts, I mean, Peter puts that right at their feet in Acts. And he's a Jew. You put the Holy One of God to death. You did that. Well, no, the Romans did that. Well, no, but you, you're responsible for it. And they say his blood be on our heads and our children's heads. I mean, you can run with that too far, but yeah. But we understand as Christians, we, we just as much put him to death. Our sin put him to death. So did the Jews put Jesus to death? Absolutely. They kill the, the Lord's Messiah? Absolutely. So did you and I. Because it was for our sins that he was punished, right? So that doesn't make the Jews any more wicked in that sense. But the tension, if you go to Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is dealing with this tension, um, and, and he speaks of his anguish. And again, I mentioned this morning in the sermon about how Jesus can know what's going to happen and even recognize it as part of the divine plan, and he can grieve over it, and it's legitimate. The Apostle Paul does the exact same thing. In the beginning of Romans 9, Paul is expressing his absolute anguish and turmoil over his countrymen's fate. And at the end of 11, he's going to say, this is all part of God's wondrous sovereign plan. And then I want to say, get it straight, Paul. And I sympathize with that tension, but it's the same tension we see in Jesus. It's the same tension we see in God the Father when he looks down at the wickedness on the earth and it grieved him in his heart that he had made man and floods the earth. And again, we can try to be smarter than God. Well, that's just, you know, that's that's anthropomorphic language. Or you can just say, okay, God's emotional life is apparently more complicated than mine, which I don't think is a big stretch. Um, Okay, 9-1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promise. To them belongs the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And then for those of you who are aware that in Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul speaks most clearly, directly, and, and at length, focused on the issues of predestination, sovereignty, and election. The reason Paul does that is to defend the very next statement. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. When you look at Israel's rejection and their subsequent discipline, and at this point in time, you know, they're, they're, they're being swept from the scene and all the attention's being brought to the church. I mean, the early church's original uh, center was where? Jerusalem. Where does it quickly shift to? Antioch, a Gentile city. The center of the church shifts from Israel to Gentile territory in the book of Acts. And from there, it just becomes more and more Gentile-dominated, even though the first couple thousand members of the church are Jews in Jerusalem. So there's this movement away. And Paul wants to make it clear, it's not as though God didn't keep his promises to Abraham. So he brings out this whole notion of election and predestination. And God said to Isaac, I'm going to, you know, one of your kids, this one, I'm not that one. And he goes on that way. And let's pick it up in chapter 11. And this is the part where he warns us, okay? Because um, what he makes the argument is that Israel's stumbling was necessary and allowed for the gospel to go to the Gentiles like you and me. That's his argument. And he's going to argue that God's not done with Israel, that he'll graft that branch back in. Um, So verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means? Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. 
salvation came to you and me, Gentiles like us, we're the goyim, because Israel rejected their Messiah. Okay? Now, if their trespass is, you could argue from the lesser to the greater, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? You think God's done with Israel? Not by a long shot. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews more jealous, and thus save some. Jump down further. Okay? Verse 17. And here's the warning against anti-Semitism. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, now what we're grafted into is the messianic promises, God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made promises he'd send a seed, and he'd, he'd make Abraham blessed and a blessing. And so we get grafted in, we receive those promises, we become Abraham's children. By the way, Abraham's son doesn't make you a Jew. Abraham birthed many nations, and the promise was Abraham be the father of many nations. People get that confused a lot. They'll say, where do, you think the, where do you think the Bible teaches the church is Israel? They go, see your Abraham's sons. Like Abraham has got tons of nations coming out of him. Tons of them. Um, and the promise is you'll be the father of many nations. Just because you're Abraham's son, which you are, if you're a person of faith, doesn't mean you're Israel. You've got, you got to go f- further up the, the tree than that. Um, anyway, so... You're grafted in. Do not be arrogant, verse 18. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. And he's referring to Israel. Israel is cut off. You are grafted in. Don't be arrogant towards those branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. That's the first point you get to. Our Savior is a Jew. Our promises are Jewish. Our Old Testament's a Jewish book. (laughs) We got let in on Jewish promises, Jewish religion, and Jewish Savior. Don't be arrogant towards the Jews. But then you will say, and here's the arrogance again, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's so important. I'm so important that God set aside Israel to bring me in. Well, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand through your faith. So do not be proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither did they spare you. You try to... Do some of the shenanigans Israel did. Do you think God's going to be more patient with you than Israel? I don't think so. That's what he's saying. So it's, it's more cause for, for, for fearful conduct. I don't mean fear like terror, but like take it seriously. Don't mess around, you know. Um, note, therefore, for God did, so verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. What God's done to Israel has, is severe. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in this kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in. I don't know how some people read Romans and think God's done with Israel. Um, for if they were cut off from what is by nature a wild, for if you were cut from what by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do, want, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And when the Bible talks about a mystery, it's not talking about a whodunit. It means something previously not revealed, revealed now. That's, that's the biblical notion of mystery when Paul speaks of it. Something that was not formally revealed, like God would make a new man in the church, taking down the wall of separation. And here's a mystery, the partial hardening of Israel. 
A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, which I think is the same way of saying what Jesus talked about, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them, and I take away their sins. And here's again the tension, Lee. They absolutely are the ones who killed Jesus. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now that's the tension right there. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom. And here's the part where he praises God for his plan. The same plan that he's, I could almost wish myself cast into hell for at the beginning of nine. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Um, uh, oh, yeah, and his ways. For from him and through him and to him, and he goes on. So that's, that's the, the, the warning against arrogance. Here, here's the analogy I'd use. Um, a, a great, rich nobleman has a son. He's grooming to take over the family business. He's the heir apparent, and his son proves to be a rebellious and worthless chap. And his father kicks him out of the house. And he's now wandering around the streets begging like the prodigal son. And he goes and he finds a street rat like you and me. And he adopts us into his home. And he actually lets us live in the son's old room. And we're sleeping in the son's bed and we're watching his TV and we're playing his Nintendo Wii and we're eating his food. And every now and then the son wanders by the front of the mansion and even sees through the window us in there. Paul talks about provoking his countrymen to jealousy. The Gentiles are enjoying your blessings and benefits. And so while the son remains disobedient to his father, there's a hostility there. But you'd be a fool. But, but, but you also know that this father loves his son and intends on restoring him when he comes to repentance. So if you encounter him in the street while you're carrying out your adopted father's business and you, you, know, you throw dirt at them and you call them names, that's not, your, father's not gonna be, your adopted father's not going to be very pleased with that. I deal with him with a certain amount of wariness a certain amount of, okay, the Lord's going to deal with you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm not going to say anything bad against you. I know what dad plans to do in restoring you. Right now, you are an enemy. You are opposed to his plans and purposes. Right now, you are playing for the other team. But I know that God's promise is irrevocable, and he intends he's not done with you. So uh, that's kind of the stance to take, um, I think. And that's the warning Paul gives against this arrogance. Now, sadly, church history is littered with accounts of exactly the opposite happening, um, exactly the opposite happening. In fact, I got a book tracing, um, linking anti-Semitism to what is known as replacement theology, although no one actually owns that name. There is no name for the theology, so it's, it's, it's um, foes, it's people who don't like it have called it that, but it, it's a pejorative term. Nobody, it's covenant theology. Nobody in that position would like that title, and that's so why I recognize that. But it's, a, it, it's the belief, however you want to put it, that Israel has been replaced by the church or that the church is true spiritual Israel or something like that. There's different ways of formulating. I don't want to make a straw man. But the bottom line is, in this view, that all of the promises that Israel had now belong to the church, all of them. Many of the promises, like the Messiah and the forgiveness. But when God talks about he's going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, I'm, I'm not 
I'm not buying a plane ticket to Jerusalem saying, okay, Lord, here I am. Now, what generally happens then is they get spiritualized at that point. The land promises get spiritualized. And so the rebuilding of Jerusalem is the picture of the church growing in its maturity. Now, the simple question to ask somebody who holds that is it's an interpretive question. And not to be rude. Here's the question. The curses, the blessings and the curses are laid right out in Deuteronomy 29, right out there. Were God's covenant curses to Israel fulfilled literally? Did they, in fact, eat their children? They were starving so much. That's what it says. You will eat your children. Yes, absolutely they did. They were starved and besieged, and the sieging of Jerusalem was so bad. And that's the, that's the level. I mean, the specific curses, were they literally or spiritually fulfilled? And everyone agrees. They were literally fulfilled. What God said he would do if they were disobedient, he did. Okay, how then can we justify spiritualizing the promises? In the same chapter, side by side. Now, the answer that they would give is, if they're honest, fair enough, that does seem strange, but we think the New Testament does that anyway, so we're just following suit. And that's a whole other discussion. Does the New Testament take the promises and spiritualize them? But, but um, So I'm trying to distinguish between Christ's kingdom, which we will have a role in, we'll have a participating role in, but it, the kingdom for us will not be the same as the kingdom for Israel. We'll be, we'll be serving different purposes in that place. So there are promises to Israel that, that are not mine. I'll give you one. The uh, priestly covenant that God makes with Phineas. Um, if you remember in Numbers 24, um, that Peor, there's a Balak takes Balaam's advice, which is, I can't curse Israel, but if you lead Israel into sin, God will spank them. And so he sends in his women, the temple prostitutes, and there's a mass orgy at Peor, and the people engage in worship of Baal. And God is so furious, he's going to you know, wipe out the people. And Phineas gets up, and he takes a spear, and he impales a couple in the act in the tent. And um, God says he averted his wrath. It's what God said to do. He said, go and impale them. You read the little footnotes in the ESV, run them through. And God makes an eternal and everlasting covenant with Phineas of of a perpetual priesthood that his sons will serve before the altar of the Lord. That doesn't get picked up again until, where did, where did Alex go? Little hobbit snuck off. Oh, there he is. Where did he go? Sorry. He's a tricksy, tricksy hobbit. Sorry. I love Alex. I'm just teasing, just teasing. But the Ezekiel's Millennial Temple. Ezekiel's Millennial Temple. Four times, I believe, we're told, the sons, the priests of the order of Zadok will serve before the altar of the Lord. And guess who Zadok's the great-grandson of? Yep, Phineas. So Ezekiel is concerned with keeping that promise because, after all, Jesus is not a descendant of Levi, is he? He's a descendant of Judah. He's a Melchizedekian priest. He's a priest not from the tribe of Levi, but God has specific covenant promises to this subset of Levi, Phineas. And Ezekiel appears to be concerned with saying, no, literally, your, your progeny, the priests of the order of Zadok, yes, that's who my son's named after, they will serve in this temple that Ezekiel made. And, so my, and, and there may be answers. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a short treatment on this, and it's, it's a big issue, and I don't want to make you think that I've given you the aha. But a good place to start is, are the promises to be literally fulfilled because the curses were? I think that's a good starting point. And you're going to have to start spiritualizing stuff. I mean, you read commentaries by Covenant Guys, through uh, Ezekiel, and they go verse by verse for, until they get to the last eight chapters. 
Because the last eight chapters of Ezekiel are at the Millennial Temple, what I believe. And they argue that's just a description of the church. It gets really tricky, though, because Ezekiel talks about the shape of the ornaments and this narthex. And this, I mean, our men's group just read through Ezekiel. I mean, it is detailed. These are blueprints. And you're like, okay, what part of the church is that? What part of the church is that? What part of the church? And so all of a sudden, the commentaries cover the last eight chapters in like 20, 30 pages, where if they were being consistent, there'd be 150. It's tricky. And I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that you know, they aren't going to have comebacks and other arguments. I, please don't think... Pastor Jeremy has just dismantled you know, covenant theology by no means. But these are some of the problems that I have, some of the questions that I have, and if I could have a peaceable talk. And, and the guys on that team are good guys. Most of the guys speaking at T4G that I'm going to are covenant all-mill guys. Um, millennial, that's I mentioned that last week, no millennium or spiritual millennium. We're in the millennium now in the church. Most, I mean, so I, I love some of these guys and I learned from them. But where, where I was linking this to is anti-Semitism. I got this book by a guy named Honer where he tracks covenant theology with this, this specific notion that the church is Israel with anti-Semitism. And he makes a pretty compelling case. Once you start thinking, just like Paul warned, <laughs> those stupid branches got cut off so I could come in, there is consistently... A evidence, and he just goes through historically noting it. I mean, even even Augustine, right? Fourth, fifth century, Augustine cites Psalm. Oh dear, what is it? It's 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 a verse in the Psalms that says, "Let them not be destroyed, but let them not be safe either." And that was his policy for the Jews. We we don't want to kill them, but we certainly don't want them to have an easy time of it. Um, I'll look it up and bring it back next week or the week after next time. Maybe if I'll find the quote, I'll bring Honer's book. But um, it, it was it was bad. It was it was bad. And throughout, I mean, Luther persecuted the Jews at the end of his life. I mean, that's been famously reported. The Nazis made a big deal out of that. Um, and so, yeah, admittedly, the church has at times been anti-Semitic, and and to our shame, absolutely. But neither what did the Pope just say that the Jews have their own way to heaven? Did he just come out like last year? I mean, it's hard to know because he says, did, did he? No, not the Protestants. We're still damned. Vatican II. No, Vatican II. Yeah, everybody but the people who picked a fight with them. Vatican II, one of the things they did at Vatican II is they brought up all the condemnations from Trent and they reaffirmed them. So as recently as like the 1950s and 60s, Rome said, one of the things we want to make clear, you're all still going to hell 26 ways to Sunday. No, no, that's one of the things they voluntarily did is they reaffirmed the canons of Trent, the judgments of the Council of Trent, which was the counter-reformation um, council that Rome had. But, um, yeah, the, the people thinking the Jews have their own special way to heaven because they're the chosen people. No, they're going to get grafted back into the mess. It's, it's Zechariah 12. They will look on me and him whom they've pierced, and the, they will, what did we do? What have we done? And even in Zechariah 12, him whom they have pierced. It's laying the blame on them. Sure. And all of us. Yeah. So, um, we got, we, oh, we got a question in the back. Ten minutes. Here we go. <laughs> I really don't have a question. My name is Mark. I'm Patrice's dad. And this oh. is my wife, Christina. I really Welcome. enjoy uh, Welcome. Your, your comments. And I just have a comment to add about the anti-Semitic. Um, when you look at when Jesus says, talks about the, the uh you know, the city being underfoot of the Gentiles until the Gentiles' time is fulfilled, we can see that being played out today because there is no peace in Jerusalem. 
So when we look at the Palestinian problem, right. if you take the time to go online and to look up how long refugees are usually in a refugee camp, it's under five years. They're usually integrated into the country where they are refugeed. They become part of the society. We've got 40 years of refugees, and the UN has been trying to solve this problem. Well, if you look around the world, a refugee problem doesn't last that long. So we can see in this one specific place, this continual problem of this thorn in the side of Israel. Is it coincidence, or is this part of God's plan of the city being trodden underfoot by the Gentiles? Yes. Yeah. Well, and you know what the uh, Palestinians come from? It's the word Philistine. Yeah, that's its derivation. No. Thank you for that. No, I understated it. I, I just don't want to pretend I know enough about history to say definitively. But no, yeah, it, it sure... What you're saying, I, I would agree with, absolutely. It sure does look like there's still no peace in Jerusalem. And the Israel that's there is still an unbelieving, rebellious, disobedient to the covenant nation. And I don't think God's done with them. And so you, you pray for them, you pray for the Psalms, you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And yet you recognize that God may well be working against it as his people rebel. It doesn't mean... The Palestinians are doing God's work and good for them, or the terrorists or whatever. You know, um, it's, it's back to Joseph. He meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God will carry out his purposes even through wicked people. But yeah, it, even as Israel has returned to the land, there's been no peace there. There's been no peace. Thank you. How long are you here for, by the way? 5.30. Okay, well, welcome. <laughs> welcome. Okay. Um, okay, one last question. Oh, Lee. No, microphone. Mark Sullivan. Microphone, you're a fan of the microphone? There oh. we go. Mark's one of the guys who tells me, make sure you use the mic. Okay, well, here is, this is a yes or no question. Yes. Answer. Ishmael, father of Islam? <sighs> it's not yes or no. There's no yes or no to that. Because it's a deduction, right? And my deduction, no, no, no. Yeah, you have to, right. No, no. He, there, the scripture promises the descendants of Ishmael will be at enmity with and in conflict with the descendants of Isaac. And then we have to then figure out who the descendants of Ishmael are. And it sure looks like, and the, the Muslims will claim to be descendants of Ishmael. And they're like, hey, that's us. So it sure looks like the case. All I'm saying is, yeah, I, I think that's what's going on, but it depends upon my deduction that these are, in fact, the descendants of this person. But the Bible absolutely, go to it, Genesis. Um, let's we'll close here. I'll take my word for it. Um, I think ooh, 14, somewhere around there, maybe 16. Hold on. Um, yeah, 16. So Sarah drives out Hagar and Ishmael. They go out into the desert, and they're, they're dying of thirst. She actually puts Ishmael down away from her so she doesn't have to watch her son dehydrate to death. Um, and the angel of the Lord, which I believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, appears to her, 
Okay, verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be... Did I, by the way, did I forget, is it when they leave the second time that they almost, they almost die of thirst? Because she's by a well here. I could be wrong. Um... I'll, I'll, anyway, we've got five minutes, so I'll just move. The angel of the Lord said to her, return, verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. No, because the son's born, so that's, uh, yeah, sorry. This is not that. She's just driven off, because when she gets pregnant, she becomes haughty, and Sarah can't stand it, and even though it's her idea, she blames her husband anyway, and drives her out, and... Um, Behold, you're pregnant, you shall bear a son. You should call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. That sure sounds like you're going to be in conflict with everybody, specifically your kinsmen. So, yeah, there's a lot of people, and I... I think there's merit to it. You think that's what we see playing out right now today in the world. I, I don't see any reason to reject that. All I'm saying is to make the connection, you know, you know Islam is de- demands deduction. It may well be a sound deduction. We just know that this person, his progeny are going to be numerous, and they're going to be a conflict with everybody. Yeah, that sure seems like a good fit, but fair enough. That is our time, ladies and gentlemen. God bless. Thank you for joining us, and uh, see you next week to celebrate the resurrection.